Welcome to The Common Round. Medical education for medical students by medical students. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And joining us today is our executive producer, Gautam. And today's talk is about the gastroesophageal reflux disease and its complications. Before we start, actually, so you mentioned gastroesophageal reflux disease. What yeah. is that? It's a term that's bandied around all the time and it took me a while to get my head around there because you know it's just so commonly used. You go into the wards, you hear people, oh, I've got gourd. You see patients, they always tell you they've got gourd. Gourd, gourd. But it's actually, the definition of gourd is a condition in which the stomach content, whether it's solid or liquid, goes backwards into the esophagus from the stomach. That's purely what it's defined as. Now you can get into the nitty gritty in terms of how often patients are getting their symptoms, whether this has led to erosion, but we can talk about that so, a little bit later. Any food going back into the esophagus is good. Pretty much, and okay. in, in simply put. So it's not a complicated definition yeah. in, in, a, in its simplest format. The question is, what is causing that food or the stomach content to travel back into the esophagus and cause all that irritation associated with the acid, uh, the, the low pH? Can you um, maybe think about some possible causes that hmm. might do this? Okay, so if I'm picturing it, so I've got the stomach and I've got the esophagus going into the stomach and this is the main areas where this problem is happening. I'm suspecting maybe the sphincter, the lower esophageal sphincter that closes the um, stomach off is possibly damaged or there's some sort of problem with it that causes food to actually allow to escape from the stomach back into the esophagus. Exactly. So I think broadly put, there's <coughs> yeah, issues with the lower esophageal sphincter in terms okay. of low pressure. So it doesn't, it's not able to keep the area closed. Okay. Yeah. There's issues with transient relaxation. So it can maintain pressure but for some reason it can cause relaxation and you get leakage okay. but there's also abdominal pressure so oh. patients who are obese or patients who wear really tight fitting clothing may yep. predispose themselves so, to a degree of reflux or uh, irritation of the stomach so people who like so if there's too much pressure in the stomach that pushes the food back into the esophagus exactly despite exactly. how well the esophag lower esophageal sphincter is working that's right okay. there are other less common causes for example um, hiatus hernias where the stomach travels through the um, esophageal hiatus esophageal hiatus or and yeah. that then you lose that functional sphincter yes. and you get reflux okay. other causes are in patients who suddenly rapidly lose fat okay. the How diaphragm yep. presses against the fat instead of the muscle around the esophagus okay. and that leads to poor closure of the sphincter yep. and there's obviously drugs that can mm -hmm. relax so calcium channel blockers an example would be let's say nifedipine or amlodipine there's uh, progesterone yep. hormones um, or pregnancy where which because calcium you mentioned calcium channel yeah. blockers because calcium is important for muscles to actually contract so exactly if you block that then you relax the Muscles. Yep. And like I said, progesterone. So in uh, conditions like pregnancy, where you know your progesterone levels are quite high to maintain uh, the the uterine, the placenta, yeah. uh, progesterone can cause muscle relaxation as well. Yeah. So there's a number of conditions that can do that. Yeah, it sounds like something. This sounds quite unpleasant. Should I be worried in getting it? Like who who are we talking about that? Actually yeah, that's good. Yeah, exactly. So there are common common people who are at, at risk. Obviously, we mentioned pregnancy. We mentioned those high risk drugs that may trigger it. But it's commonly seen. It's more common in men than 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 women uh -oh. it's more common in unfortunately in obese patients which we talk about because you know you have this mechanical pressure and also yep. the fat pad common in smokers i mean smoking seems to trigger lots of stuff and yep. that happens to be one of them yeah if people have a family history of reflux or gourd it's common in, okay. in that group as well as yep. well as um patients who lie down quite a lot because that acid can leak out um. and unfortunately our western and obesogenic lifestyle is a big risk factor for gourd. developing gourd 
I see. So we've talked about what causes it and who's more vulnerable to it. What exactly would we see or what would the patient feel? Yeah, exactly. So this brings us to the symptoms. The common symptom that patients complain about is heartburn. Now, you have to think to, think to yourself, you know, why is it called heartburn? It's pretty much because these patients get this sort of burning that travels up the sternum to the lower chest and lower thorax area towards the neck. It's And, and it can be mistaken for cardiac signs. So it can be mistaken for an MI. But the interesting thing is that if patients complain of heartburn, there's the positive predictive value of them having gourd is around 87%. So it's a fairly strong indicator of... So a positive predictive value. That's right, yeah. What exactly does that mean? So it's it's an epidemi- epidemiological nomenclature. It so just means that if someone has this, it's are, likely, the odds are that they probably do have it. The okay. higher that number so the yeah. higher that percentage the more likely that you are confident so that they have they have this 80 percent of 87 percent of people who have this burning sensation in the chest are likely to have heart yeah disease. yeah also- around, around that ballpark figure yeah. that's right but there's also not just heart there's acid regurgitation so andy how do you define acid regurgitation people com- complain about it all the time but what does it mean so is it just like this sort of the acid travels from the stomach into the esophagus but does the regurgitation have to go even higher than this the esophagus it can so some people can actually complain of this sour tasting uh, fluid that comes out. Yeah. But I mean, that has to be in a really severe case. Yeah. And often associated with that regurgitation is also burping and, and flatulence as well, which needs to be um, uh, addressed. But there's other non-less specific symptoms. You know, patients can complain about nausea. Um, they can uh, experience what is called a symptom that is called water brash. Do you know mm. what? what's involved with that would be something that patients can roll off their tongue to say like i've got water breath yeah that's right they describe it in Mm. another way do you know how i remember it is just that suddenly you've got a lot of saliva coming out of that that you're producing and the patients won't know why exactly suddenly they have lots of it Odds are maybe because of the increased acid. Exactly. And I guess the reason why patients begin to hypersalivate, so begin to experience water brash, is that saliva is high in bicarbonate. And so the body is trying to produce lots of saliva to try to neutralize the acid. But unfortunately, you know, if you drink lots of water or if you have lots of saliva, you also are taking into account lots of air. And so that's why these patients sometimes get quite a lot of burping and flatulence as well. So there is these relationships between these symptoms, which means that you have to memorize less mm-hmm. and you just have to understand one or two symptoms and you can deduce you know what other patients are likely to experience yeah but there's symptoms outside of the esophagus that patients can complain about and these are often called supraesophageal symptoms can you explain a little bit about what, what these are there's a few that i can link quite easily so we mentioned the acid regurgitation so let's say the acid comes up into up the um, esophagus to the back of the throat and into the mouth and that can commonly cause dental erosions I yeah think. that's right so, yeah uh, there are a few stories where people go like, oh, my dentist diagnosed me with gourd first before anybody else. And I think odds are it's because the dentist noticed that the teeth are being eroded. Things such as the um, mouth ulcers that can occur, yeah. um, as well as some coughs, I, I believe it might be just because due to some sort of discomfort mm-hmm. in the esophagus. But there are some other things, such as the globus and the halitosis, that I'm not too familiar with. Could you explain that to me? Yeah, I mean, globus, uh, I'm not 100% sure about how this comes away. It just, they, they, patients complain that they have this sort of lump or pressure around their throat. Is this some actual physical lump? Or I, th- I think it just feels like this tightening of the throat. And maybe Ooh. because the muscles are yeah. uh, in, in the airway are being irritated, yep. and that causes this uh, per- periodic spasming. Yes. Halitosis probably refers to the fact that there's 
acid and there's acid lingering in the in the oral pathway and that just leads to bad breath so halitosis is just a fancy word for bad breath breath, yeah i'm not sure how specific or sensitive these sort of symptoms are in Mm. terms of diagnosing reflux disease or gourd but they're, you know, indicators and hints to exploring exploring the patient more. And obviously through history and examination, you might be able to ascertain this a little bit further. But there are also some triggers for these patients as well. So in terms of dietary triggers, Andy, what do you think would be some of the stuff that might... I mean, my complaint, my thing is Indian food kills me all the time. <laughs> it, it gives me really bad reflux um, yeah. to the point where, you know, it's just... And there are some quite, there are quite a few common advices that people pass around with this reflux. And one of the most probably well-known ones are to avoid these spicy, fatty, rich foods with, um, or avoid coffee as well as alcohol. Some also other things that some other lifestyle things that people should be aware, aware of is to avoid smoking as well as possibly even stress. That's right, yeah. But in terms of other triggers, there could be mechanical triggers as well where, you know, like people wear really tight-fitting clothing or really tight belts yeah. and things like that that can trigger it. Or even postural, so if they're lying down all the time, which we mentioned, as well as um, actually having a large meal can you know, cause slight dilation of the esophageal sphincter and, and lead to mm. um, uh, reflux symptoms. So you often hear the term gourd, but you also come across this term called NERD or NORD, so um, non-erosive gastroesophageal disease i think you know gourd can be one definition is you know just stomach content going back but another definition is the frequency of symptoms and how severe the symptoms are in terms of nerd these patients get these sort of reflux like symptoms but they don't necessarily get the erosion that the acid causes in the esophagus and i think that's the distinguishing feature so nerds are gourds essentially but that don't erode worse. they're milder versions of gourd i think okay and, and you know Gourd is the more severe mm. presentation of, of these sort of more milder forms. But there are other complications associated with um, having people that suffer from gourd. Can you perhaps think about some, some of those complications? Yeah. So one of the most classical um, cases that come up associated with gourd would be this thing called Barrett's esophagus. Yes. Yeah. And um, what essentially it is, is just after a long time, of uh, once the esophagus has been exposed to these acid attacks often enough the cells there adapt and change into a more suitable uh, cell type to to be acid resistant yeah and as we all know the esophagus is usually an epithelial cell it changes into a metaplastic columnar cell instead to mimic the stomach um, stomach cells to in order to fight off this sort of acid attack exactly so yeah. it Barrett's esophagus essentially is just a mutation of the uh, adaption of the esophagus to cope with this increasingly acidic environment exactly right it's a very interesting condition and it does predispose you to dysplasia so to, to a cancerous state particularly adenocarcinomas of the esophagus so after a long time of these mutations eventually it's going to turn yeah. cancerous yeah exactly um other sort of complications include um esophageal strict uh, strictures so you know that ex- constant exposure to acid can cause scarring and, and tightening of the esophagus so that it just doesn't respond to relaxation um, and it's just very tight difficult and then people or patients may then complain about swallowing difficulties because food's getting stuck yeah you can get just generalized inflammation so esophagitis and they can sometimes predispose you to uh, cancerous states as well okay. but you can have symptoms outside of the GIT as well just like patient uh, you can have complications outside of the GIT just like the symptoms so c- can you think of of potential um, non-GIT complications. So non-GIT complications that lead to... That are a product of prolonged 
um, gourd. Are we talking about something like pneumonia? I'm just yeah, thinking. yeah, exactly. Like, you know, patients can sometimes aspirate some of these acidic contents yeah. and that can cause, you know, called micro aspirations that can predispose them to pneumonias, but it can also cause pulmonary fibrosis as well. Um, so restrictive airway disease, it can sometimes cause asthma or it can cause laryngitis because that acid travels through the larynx and the yeah. trachea to reach the, yeah. the lower airway tract. So there's other um, factors to consider. They're probably quite rare, but it's be it's important to be mindful of when you see a patient that might uh, ex- exhibit some of these symptoms. So, Andy, how do we diagnose gourd? Like, what are some of the diagnostic approaches that are commonly utilized? One thing that I'm thinking of was just was that we need to take a good history and find out what exactly the symptoms are. Especially yep. when you mentioned the heartburn has such a high positive predictive value. Exactly. Then also, once we've done all that, we can also do endoscopies. Would that be something that you look yeah, at? Yeah, yeah. I mean, endoscopies is probably the gold standard. But before, I mean, these mm. conditions can sometimes be benign. And there is obviously always a risk associated with any form of intervention. So what might be an approach would be to give the patient a medication that reduces acid secretion, whether it's oh. a histamine 2 receptor blocker like ranitidine or whether it's a PPI, proton pump inhibitor like omeprazole, you can give them that. And if the symptoms respond, that indicates that or suggests that, you know, this patient probably does suffer from a degree of reflux. I I agree with you. So before, like, so we would take this history from the patient, find out what they have. We have in mind, maybe it's good. And instead of going straight into shoving a endoscope down their throat, give them the treatment and see what the symptom proves. And if it's non-responsive, then it suggests maybe it's more complicated version so you might have to actually perform an endoscopy to get a good picture of what's going on in terms of endoscopies there is a classification that is commonly uh, used and it's called the Los Angeles classification of reflux esophagitis. That one's above my head please tell me. Yeah yeah I mean look I'm not going to claim to fully understand this but um, so the way the classification works is that it grades the degree of erosion into A, B, C and D A being mole forms Mm -hmm. and D being the worst the worst form that's right okay. and it has quite a good amount of evidence base behind it yeah um, so the importance of this is that it tells you that there is quite a lot of erosion okay and it means that if there is quite a lot of erosion then it could potentially be a risk factor for Barrett's esophagus or other complications that we talked about mm-hmm. which then indicates how often these patients need to be monitored by through an endoscopy to prevent a cancerous state from being established and it could make direct therapy as well so the higher the LA classification, the more likely the person is going to develop cancer? Uh, I don't think it's as, as black and white as that, but it's, okay. it's just suggests that it's highly erosive oh, and, okay. um, and you, know, you need to implement good management to um, improve the symptoms. But in terms of its diagnostic capa- or predictive capacity, I'm not too clear yeah. on that. Yeah. Do you think barium, barium swallow, where you swallow that contrast and take an x-ray, do you think that has much of a role in terms of reflux disease? I used to think that it was something that people commonly did, but what routinely we were told by our lecturers was that it's an outdated procedure yeah. nowadays yeah. and hardly anybody does it. Exactly. I think one utility of, of a barium swallow is in being able to diagnose a hiatus hernia but it doesn't really tell you whether this person has erosions in their esophagus so That's its true, utility is quite limited you, you look at this contrast going down but i guess when you when it goes down it doesn't tell you whether it's exactly. got any broken ulcers or something like that. that's right exactly hmm. so there's one other diagnostic tool that you can use, and that's called a 24-hour pH monitor, where they put a probe in your um, esophagus and they just monitor your 24-hour pH. Jeez, that sounds unpleasant. It it probably is. I've I've never seen it being being performed, but um, it may indicate if these pH levels are constantly above, a, you know, a 
established threshold, it does suggest that there is probably acid leaking into the esophagus. Yeah. So now that we've covered diagnosis in terms of you know trialing treatment first, yeah, and then if it doesn't work, then looking at endoscopies. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the treatment. So let's talk about lifestyle treatments first, which mm-hmm. is the easiest, the l- less riskiest approach. Yep. What are some lifestyle measures that we've already kind of we've mentioned the risk factors? What are some lifestyle measures that we can instill? And then uh, Galton mentioned the five C's. Can you maybe expand on that a little bit more, Galton, if you like? No? Yeah, we're getting a, a big nod. Um, <laughs> Andy, do you want to talk about the five C's? So the five C's is refers to the five types of it refers to the types of foods to avoid and it's, uh, it's something to help us remember it so there's chocolate coffee cola beverages citrus juices and carmatives such as pe- spearmint and peppermints pretty much one of the, all of the best things to in what in the, in, in the world enjoy. Exactly. that's right if we talk about lifestyle factors of what to improve usually a good way to think of it is just to memorize what uh, people are most vulnerable and pretty much do the opposite so let's say that if a person's obese and that makes them vulnerable to getting gourd then one of the lifestyle managements is to actually uh, lose weight smoking is a huge factor of it and so thus uh, stopping t- stop smoking is also one of the main lifestyle factors to prevent gourd and or make the symptoms more bearable uh, also, alcohol consumption is one of the things to avoid. Excessive alcohol consumptions, especially. That's right. And yeah. one of the things, one of the more practical things, I think that would be quite interesting for patients to try is to elevate their bed by a few inches. So what they can do is just grab that, grab that medical textbook that you never read, and then just shove that under the bed. <laughs> Actually, how do you, how would you describe it? So where would you put these? I think it's just where would you elevate the just um, on, on the just behind the where, where you rest your head, just yeah. so that the acid doesn't creep along the esophagus and it remains in the, in the stomach. Mm. Um, and that supposedly has a fair bit of evidence base behind it as well. So it's one of those interventions where the, you know there's probably you know mm. a bit of proof that it does work. Mm. And obviously, like other smaller things would be like avoid you know wearing tight clothing and. Importantly, like you mentioned, avoid all the dietary risk factors. So let's say that you've tried lifestyle and it doesn't work or mm. the patients are still symptomatic. Mm. What would be the next approach? You would go and I would imagine it would be to start trying some medical intervention. Yeah. yeah. And um, I, to my knowledge, there's about three main uh, classes of uh, medications or three main guys that target this acid problem in the stomach. And so reflux essentially is the acid that comes back up into the esophagus that causes all this strife. So the idea is to reduce the amount of acid being produced. So one way we can do it is using antacids. Antacids basically are a alkaline um, product that neutralizes the acid and reduces the pH. I mean, increases the pH so that the um, the content isn't as irritating. A next step up would be these histamine two receptor antagonists or H2 antagonists, as Hamid talked to before. Um, If you go back to our physiology lecture, you would know that histamine plays an important role in acid secretion. And then finally, the the biggest players would be the proton pump inhibitors, where they go straight to the end product and stop the cells from actually producing producing the acid. So all of the mechanisms can be um, found in our physiology lecture series. If you were to just rank them, I would say PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors, work the best, then second by the H2 antagonists, and then the antacids. That's right, exactly right. 
And obviously, you know, you want to look at the medications that could potentially trigger reflux as well. So, you know, looking at if they're on blood pressure, antihypertensive medications, looking at maybe changing the calcium channel blockers if oh, yeah. they are on that. Yep. Um, looking at medications that directly irritate the esophagus. So things like bisphosphonates or um, uh, medications like theophylline, which isn't commonly used for asthma, but it may be a risk factor to have that reviewed as well. But I think that pretty much covers it. There's also one other intervention in patients who really have had no luck and that's surgical. And the surgical procedure is called funduplication. Mm-hmm. And that's where you wrap the, uh, the fundus of the stomach, so the top part of the stomach, around the lower esophageal sphincter or the lower end of the esophagus to form this artificial sphincter. And that seems to help alleviate the symptoms as well. So it's like a double sphincter. That's right, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So you've got medical, lifestyle, and surgical, and hopefully with some of these approaches then you can alleviate their symptoms. So just to summarize, mm. we've mentioned that gastroesophageal reflux disease is stomach content leaking to the esophagus. Yep. We talked about some of the pathophysiology. So it could be from the sphincter itself malfunctioning, or it could be from high pressure within the stomach, yep. or it could be because of drugs that we're taking, exactly. or some structural problems. Yeah, like yeah. a hernia or, um, or diaphragm pushing against the fat pad instead of the actual esophagus. Mm. Um, in terms of symptoms, heartburn is probably the more important one. Pa- patients can also complain about uh, acid regurgitation, can burp quite a lot, can experience water brash and have symptoms outside of the esophagus as well. So in terms of diagnosis, we mentioned that treatment because they're relatively low risk, trialing that and see whether that improves. If it doesn't, then endoscopy would be the approach. Barium swallow doesn't play a huge role in, in diagnosis of GORD. Um, and if, you know, if, if you're really pressed, you can also try a 24-hour pH study. Mm. And we've mentioned the medical and lifestyle, as well as surgical interventions as well. So avoid fatty foods, avoid the five Cs, the, the chocolate, coffee, colas, acidy foods, as well as um, losing weight, stop smoking, uh, reducing alcohol intake. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So that pretty much wraps up the talk on GORD. Do, do you guys have any other points that you want to um, discuss before we finish? Thank you very much once again um, for joining us uh, on this session. We hope to catch up with you guys in, in our future sessions. And if you have any feedback or comments, just let us know. Um, see you next time. See you next time.